How's it going, everybody? This is Chris uh, with episode two of X Lapsed here at the Chris and Reggie channel. Uh, this is usually where I say you could find this show however often it'll show up, but uh, I'm not sure how often the show will show up. Uh, it might go in bursts like it is right now. I think this is uh, two days in a row going through these books here. I guess uh, I got a little excited about this new project. So today we're going to take a look at the second part of the Hox Pox deal. And this is Powers of X, number one, also out of September 2019, cover date. Uh, now, Powers of X was uh, kind of where I started to glaze over when I gave this uh, storyline or this arc a, an attempt last year. I, I, I was mostly enjoying the House of X stuff, but the Powers of X really, uh, you know, uh, terms like high concept go out uh, a lot when you talk about Hickman's work. And... Uh, this feels pretty high concept, um, and uh, like maybe a little too detached from what I'm expecting out of an X-Men comic. So we'll uh, traverse this together. I will do my best. I don't want to uh, judge it too harshly. Um, uh, you know, I can judge it as maybe not being in my wheelhouse, but I, I can't judge it as being uh, you know lacking in any quality because there's certainly a lot of work put into this and. Uh, it's a, uh, it, you know, I, I suppose if this is the kind of thing that you're into, if this uh, sort of story, you know, tickles your fancy, you're going to love it. But uh, we'll do what we can, and I will uh, attempt to push <laughs> through this sort of story. Um, and I'm doing so with optimism. I'm hoping that taking a more active role in reading this rather than just passively reading it um, and just getting on to the next issue, actually stopping to kind of digest uh, all of these concepts and all of these threads, I'm hoping that it'll uh, leave a more lasting impression in me, and uh, hopefully I can make better sense of it and uh, just enjoy it as, a, as another chapter in this, uh, in this run that so many people uh, appreciate and enjoy. So we'll get right into it here. Of course, Powers of X number 1, September 2019 cover date. story is called The Last Dream of Professor X. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by R.B. Silva. Colors, Marty Gracia. Col uh, letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Design, Tom Muller. Way too many covers, which, I mean, I'll always complain about that, because that's... <laughs> you want to make a book feel less special? Let's give it a hundred covers, uh, so you can't even pick out which one's the real one. Uh, edits, Annalise Bisa, Jordan D. White, and C.B. Sabalski. $5.99 USD, so a pretty thick book, pretty expensive book. And uh, this one hits shelves, allegedly, on July 31st, 2019. Now, we open up 
uh, with a page featuring four different ages of sorts here. We see X to the zeroth power is year one, which is labeled as the dream. X to the first power is labeled as the world, year ten. X to the second power is year 100, which signifies the war. And X to the third power is the year one is uh, th- 1,000 years in the future and uh, signifies ascension. So I'm guessing these are the powers of X, maybe? I don't know. Now, I gotta say, I might diverge a little bit from the wider, you know, X fandom here, but uh, when we start getting into things in, like, the way flung, far-flung future, I check out. Um... Even, you know, like the seminal stories like, uh, you know, Days of Future Past, I I just I just didn't feel like there were any stakes in them. Um, I couldn't even appreciate them as, you know, stories because I, I, I just can't connect. Um, it's probably why I don't read, like, Legion. I just can't connect to the future. Uh, if you want to give me, like, a not-so-distant future or maybe, like, a not-so-distant past, I'm down with that. But uh, if we're going, like, 100 or 1,000 years into the future... That's going to be a toughie for me to uh, to relate to. And, I mean, that's not a fault of the story. That's not a fault of the storytellers. That's just my own personal tastes. If uh, if you guys dig stories that take place, you know, forever from now, you're probably going to dig this a lot more than I will. Or at least it'll be easier for you to receive than it will be for me. Now, moving on. We pop back to X to the Zeroth, and that's uh, year one. We're in the middle of that festival from the beginning of Chrono Trigger when a familiar young woman approaches Charles Xavier who's lounging on a park bench watching the festivities play out. And they share uh, some sort of flirtatious conversation here and uh, she talks about running into a fortune teller. And, uh, and we can see that there are these uh, three tarot-esque cards. Now the first one is labeled The Magician and it features a sword-wielding intangible girl stepping through a wall. Well, the second one is called the Tower, which depicts, well, a tower. The third is the Devil, which uh, has what looks like a red-skinned nightcrawler on it. Now, Mora, this Mora uh, Kinross, I believe she is at this point in time, she notes Charles's happiness, and uh, he reveals that uh, he's just had the most wonderful dream about a much better world and what part he's going to play in it. Mora tells him that uh, dreams ain't dreams if they're real. And this triggers a little bit of suspicion in the professor, and he uh, he inquires whether or not they've ever met before. He's like, who are you exactly? And uh, in order to tell the tale here, she invites him to read her mind. From here, we jump to the credits page, is, because we need to. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why the credits need to waste so much paginal real estate, but they do. And from here, we shift to X to the first power, which is evidently year 10. Now, so everything that's happened to this point since X-Men number 1 back in 1963 has occurred in a single decade? Is that what I'm supposed to believe? Um, as a, you know, a fan of lore and a fan of uh, the long, like the long con of a comic story here, I've never been a fan of, like, pinpointing dates inside, like, a clustered chronology. Um... I remember Zero Hour came with that, you know, fold-out timeline, which as a, you know, 14-year-old kid, I thought was the coolest thing ever. But as a 40-year-old adult, I can see the inherent problem with something like that. Uh, because not only are you pigeonholing yourself into into place, but you're also um, opening yourself up to someone coming along later on and contradicting it. <laughs> so 
rendering your entire uh, creative endeavor or creative exercise as irrelevant or uh, past or post-dated, you know. Uh, and I've talked about this before. There really are no rules with comics anymore. Uh, if you're a hot creator, you come in, you you lay the rules down. It's not an editor's job anymore to stop you from doing that. It seems you you basically tell the editor what you're gonna do. And uh, at least you know, as an outsider looking in, that's how it feels. Uh, we've had so much uh, chronology just dumped or contradicted flat out that it's it's hard to really invest. So here we are establishing. If I'm if I'm reading this correctly, that the entire X Men's history took place in ten years, um, which I don't like uh, because it just feels way too clustered. At the same time, it invites opportunity for uh, contradiction. So I mean, I feel like no matter how good the story might be, I'm gonna I'm the kind of uh, weirdo who gets lost in the weeds so easily that this might be a sticking point for me. It's a uh, yeah. Yeah, I, it just feels a little. This is one situation where I think nebulousness is uh, is is uh, is something that's helpful uh, to a comic reader. Uh, now, anyway, back to X the Oneth, and we're on Krakoa. Mystique and Toad are here to dis- to deliver that data that they've stolen from Damage Control over in House of X number one. Now, before handing the goods over to Magneto, Mystique tries holding him up in order to make some demands. Now, this is overheard by Charles, who kind of calls her out for it, and he suggests that uh, helping her fellow mutant should be all the reward she needs. He gets it, though, because uh, even he has more demands. You see, everybody involved in this new, better mutant world has got to do their part and pull their weight, you know, play, pay their dues, basically. Uh, he takes the thumb drive and he, uh, well, he sticks it into some Krakoan vegetation. Okie doke. Next stop, X to the second, which is year 100. And, uh, oh boy, we open up here and we see an Evangelion-looking thing on this page, and I'm already beginning to glaze over. Now, we're in the midst of a war, it seems, uh, between the humans and something, or between the mutants and something called the man-machine supremacy. I already don't care. Um, (laughs) this is a little much. Uh, now, Ava Unit 1 and an associate who looks like, uh, they might be like a future Hellfire Club soldier... They're stood over what I can only assume to be a dead mutant who looks a lot like Elixir from the new X-Men. Now, we found out in House of X on that page that uh, discussed the uh, Omega-level mutants that Elixir is one. So maybe he can live a hundred years, but, uh... I don't know, I guess it's a good thing we're living in the age of the Marvel Wiki because, uh, we find out that this person is actually called Percival, not Elixir, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's dead here. Uh, now, we got the remaining three of this foursome of uh, X-Men. We have Rasputin IV, who I believe is the sword-wielding intangible girl from that first tarot card earlier. Her skin looks metallic, and she's got the soul sword, so perhaps she's an amalgamation of Kitty, Colossus, and Magic? Uh, I mean, we are going to find out that these X-Men are were like bred, uh, like in some sort of Mr. Sinister gimmick on Mars, so it might stand to reason that there was some, you know, sort of genetic tinkering. We're going to get confirmation on that shortly. Uh, we got Cardinal, who is that red Nightcrawler-looking character from the third tarot card, and he looks to be a blend of Kurt and maybe Rachel. Um, finally, there's Silobel, a machine who joined the mutant resistance, uh, I guess. Uh, she's got a black brain, which renders her unreadable. And uh, she kind of looks like a female version of the Teen Titans' baddie, uh, Simon, or Puss Simon. 
Um, now, while Ava Unit 1 and the future Hellfire Soldier are caused Silabel, the Cardinal plants a black seed of Krakoa in the ground. Now, Rasputin unleashes the Soul Sword and attempts to save Silabel. Unfortunately for her, machines ain't got no souls. Backup baddies arrive, which makes the odds rather insurmountable for Rasputin. Uh, Silabel demands Rasputin leave her behind and save herself, and uh, after some struggle, she begrudgingly does just that. Now, from here, we get an info page that's actually helpful in explaining the sinister breeding program Chimera. And uh, my earlier assumption about uh, Rasputin's Chimera makeup wasn't too far off the mark. Uh, She's listed as being part Kitty and either part Colossus or Magic, it just says Rasputin. But also Quentin Choir, Eunice the Untouchable, and X-23. So maybe the, uh, you know, the in... The impenetrable skin might be a result of Eunice rather than Colossus. Uh, now, we're shown here that there are multiple generations of this breeding dealie, which kind of feels like three too many, because it feels like a whole lot of info to be dumping on us here. Uh, it's uh, it's hard to... It's like, you know, the, the cup is spilling over, and it's hard to really, uh, it's hard to really invest. Uh, there's talk of suicide and singularity, which... Makes me think that maybe that Evangelion we saw wasn't an accident, because <laughs> this feels a little bit, a little bit too much like End of Evangelion right here, if you're familiar with that uh, series or that that episode. Now, Silabel is taken to the Tower of Nimrod the Lesser, which looks a whole heck of a lot like that tower on that second tarot card. Now, Nimrod is seated on a throne, looking like a great big marshmallow. Next to him is a woman he refers to as Omega, so this might be Karima What's-Her-Face, perhaps? I don't know. Uh, Nimrod glibly apologizes to Silabel, who was originally a hound created to track down mutants. Silabel defected and went against her programming. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Nimrod refers to Silabel as a bad idea and suggests that bad ideas die a bad death. Silabel swears that she'll win out in the end, which Nimrod, Nimrod finds pretty adorable. He even, like, tells her, you know, eh, that's the spirit. Silabel is prepared for questioning. They want to find out everything she learned uh, about, you know, her time with uh, these rebellious X-Men. And uh, it's sort of like a bath. Uh, they're planning, preparing to give her a bath, I guess. Uh, she's about to be dipped into a chamber of something called femtofluid. Uh, where she'll be basically be rendered down to nothing more than raw data, which Nimrod can use to continue fighting his good fight against the mutants. And uh, again, if you're familiar with Evangelion, this feels kind of Evangeliony here. Uh, it's not quite LCL, but it's also not not LCL from the end of Evangelion. Uh, Silabel is stuffed on in, and uh, I'm gonna assume she dies here. We got another info page. This time it's for the Sal San or Sal Ken Kennel, which is the Sentinel Mutant Breeding Camps. It's here we learn a little bit about the black-brained hounds, uh, the last of which were, for whatever reason, conditioned to be duplicitous here, uh, which uh, seems counterproductive, but what do I know? Uh, That might just be why Nimrod referred to Silabel and her ilk as bad ideas, because, yes, that sounds like a very bad idea. We next pop over to the No Place Hub, where Rasputin the Fourth, or Rasputin IV in Cardinal, emerge from a Krakoan gateway. Now, does this mean that we're going to be dealing with Krakoan gateways forevermore in X-Men comics? Because I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that. <laughs> I don't know that I want this forever. Um, now, they're greeted by uh, maybe some familiar faces, but uh, 
familiar costumes at least. Uh, we've got a Magneto, we've got Zorn, we got Wolverine, and uh, we got Swamp Thing. Or maybe it's Groot. I, I, I hope it's not Groot. I hate Groot. Uh, not a fan of the gimmick or the meme. Uh, now, Wolverine asks if Silabel and Percival died for nothing. To which the Cardinal responds that they've got it. What it is, I haven't the foggiest idea. Now, Wolverine tells them that the old man is waiting, and uh, it looks like he's going to be waiting until we get to the next issue, because this is the last we see of that. From here, we get another info page, and the mutants are now living on something called Asteroid K. So maybe Krakoa is an asteroid? Maybe? Like, instead of Asteroid M, it's Asteroid K? Uh, whatever the case, there's only eight left um, on this asteroid, uh, though there are plenty more mutants uh, flung around the Shi'ar space, though. Now, we finish this story up with X to the third, one friggin' thousand years later. And this is the kind of stuff that keeps me from reading the Legion, you know? Um, and these few pages feel like something that could have verily, very easily uh, been in a Legion comic. Um, I remember post-Rebirth, uh, there was always this like weird rumor that uh, Jonathan Hickman was going to go over to do Legion for DC. I don't know why uh, that was such a, you know, such a long-standing and, uh, and, you know, steamed rumor. It felt like every few months you'd hear something about it. And I, I wonder, even if that was true in the slightest, if maybe Hickman repurposed some of those ideas for this. Because this feels... This doesn't feel like we're reading an X-Men comic anymore. This feels like I would imagine a Legion comic of current year to be like. Um, now, it's here... That we meet the librarian, and uh, I'm not talking about that character Marv Wolfman created as a kid. Uh, this is a blue-skinned Legion reject who's wearing a sort of Cerebro helmet. Now, it looks like uh, the data that they're trying to retrieve from it is either corrupted or just fading away. Now, it's worth noting that they're in the archives of Nimrod the Greater. So, we can assume that Nimrod the Lesser has evolved, or maybe... They won that war, you know, that human-machine war or whatever it was from a uh, hundred years in the future. Now, the librarian's little skeets-like buddy pops in to take the blame for the loss of data, claiming that the integrity of those files was their responsibility and maybe that those, you know, that data wasn't supposed to last quite as long as, uh, you know, a thousand years into the future. Now, it looks like humanity and the like are no more in this far-flung future, and, uh, but there is a sort of domed preserve nearby. The, the librarian like goes out on the, like walks through this citadel or wherever they are and uh, goes to this balcony overlooking a glowing dome. Now the librarian compares this dome to, uh, or what they keep inside this dome to dinosaur bones. You know, it's a, a reminder of the past. Uh, it's, it's why, you know, people of our time keep dinosaur bones, just to know what was, and uh, we wrap up this issue with a look inside the dome, and we can see a pair of figures standing in the lush foliage. And uh, if you'll allow me to get lost in the scenery and potential symbolism here, I don't know if this is an Adam and Eve thing. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, maybe it was meant to make me think it was, and it won't be. Who knows? Uh, but whoever they are, the librarian is hopeful that they will never have dominion over the planet again. So humanity, mutant kind, they are, they are Dunsky. A thousand years into the future, and uh, there are just a few being left in this uh, this domed preserve in the future. So that's where we end up. That's the end of Powers of X number one, and uh, there's a lot here. 
we have a lot here and it's um it's just so hard for me personally to relate to these uh these disparate timelines um uh, this is pretty much the reason why I dropped reading this uh, the first couple of times I tried it. Uh, it's just so hard for me to uh, appreciate uh, these potential futures, especially when they are just so far flung. And we have these characters who... You know, I enjoyed the art in the first issue, and for the most part I enjoyed the art here, but it does feel like uh, it was a little less um, inspired here. Uh, where... Last issue, the House of X number one, you could tell who everybody was, everything was pretty clear, but this was a little, uh, I don't want to say rough because it's still very good, it just doesn't resonate the same way with me, I guess. Um, I feel like we, we've been getting a lot of this sort of thing, uh, where we're seeing like the X-Men of the future. I think uh, during the Bendis run we got a couple of, uh, a couple of crossovers where we saw uh, these strange teams of X-Men, and... Uh, it's just never easy for me to to really get in on this. I I, I like my X Men a little bit more grounded than this. Uh, not you know it doesn't have to be you know the quote unquote street level, but uh, I don't know this feels a little too uh, a little too high concept uh, to to use the old tired <laughs> you know, takeaway term here. I am intrigued by the uh, the Mora and uh, Charles conversation in the beginning and. You know, up until I got to the credits page, I was very, very excited to push through this because I thought it was going to be more of that. I know that there is at least one future issue that uh, goes deep on uh, on Mora, the life and times, or the lives and times, as it might turn out to be, of uh, Mora, uh, Kinross, McTaggart, whatever. So I was expecting that here when I got this, uh, you know, the Chrono Trigger Festival scene in the beginning, and was... Uh, not gonna lie, I was disappointed when, when it wasn't the case. Uh, I am confident that it'll come around, uh, because everybody I've spoken to so far can't be wrong, right? <laughs> I, um, you know, anytime that I have a differing opinion from anybody, I always assume that it's me that has the problem. So, uh, hopefully, uh, once we get through this, I will uh, appreciate these scenes a little bit more than I do right now. But as it stands at the moment, uh, this was... Uh, a little overwhelming um, and hard to relate to for me as a uh, ex fan of a certain vintage and a, and a certain uh, set of tastes, I suppose. But onward and upward, I guess I am looking forward to seeing this all, uh, you know, tied up in a in a in a tidy bow at the end of uh, the Hox Pox run here to see, uh, you know, see what I've been missing out on this past year. So that'll do it for today, and. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, listening. I want to thank you for coming back if you if you did in fact come back from the first episode. Uh, I'm not sure how fun this series is going to be. Just hearing me stammer and and uh, fumble and stumble my way into uh, X relevancy. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you join me on this little trip. And uh, definitely, if you have anything you'd like to talk about regarding this run. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find some writings at ChrisOnInfiniteEarths.com. And, of course, the entire audio archives is up at ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com. I think that's all I've got for you today. Uh, Till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
searching for 